All right, guys, we got PFL number two coming up this Thursday, the 28th of April, with a 5.30 p.m. Eastern start time. The event's being held in Arlington, Texas, at the Esports Arena, which is part of the Dallas Cowboys complex. The main event's going to feature Bruno Capeloza versus Stuart Austin in a heavyweight battle. There's 10 bouts in total on this card, with all bouts being either a featherweight bout or a heavyweight bout. We'll start with the main card, work our way back down to the prelims, going each fight one fight at a time, giving you our favorite picks to win, talking about the prop bets, some background information on the fighters. Now, the first few fights on the card, we skimmed over those. The first three or four, we didn't do a deep dive on them we unfortunately just didn't have the time to go over those in detail but we give you at least our picks to win and why so with that said guys let's jump into it here we go The main event for PFL number two is going to be a heavyweight battle between Bruno Capeloza from Brazil and Stuart Austin from England. Austin goes by He-Man. He's 15-7 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's 33 years old, 6-3 in height with a 77-inch reach. He's out of Titan Fighter Gym. As for Capeloza, 14-5 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Last year, he was the PFL heavyweight champion, so got a million-dollar check. A very emotional night for him because that same night he found out moments after the fight that his father had just passed away. He took like the first flight back to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Wasn't even there for the press conference, but nonetheless, he was a champion last year, won a million dollars. So he's from Sao Paulo, Brazil, 32 years old, 11 months, so about to be 33. Six foot two in height with 79 inch reaches out of Corinthians MMA, which is down in Brazil. Let's look at the fighter profiles. For Bruno Capeloza, some notable opponents in his past. Yuri Przaska, 2018 round one KO loss. Go back and watch that fight. It's only a round one fight. The thing is, it's a 10 minute first round. Yeah, I don't know what promotion that was, but the point is it was a 10 minute first round. Didn't last that long. Bruno knocks down Yuri in that fight. Now, when I say knockdown, it was a straight jab, kind of caught him a little bit off balance. He had to actually back up, put his hand on the ground. It was a knockdown. The broadcast was very pro-Yuri and didn't even acknowledge the fact that he went down. But the point is, he does get buzzed in that fight. The fight's going a little crazy, and all of a sudden, Bruno gets cracked. Yuri Przaska with his fighting karate style, throwing from the hip, cracks Bruno. Bruno gets hurt, but never fully recovers. And so he gets knocked down again, tries to get back up. He just can't fully recover, ends up getting finished in the first round of a 10-minute first round. In any case, Yuri gets the winner 2018 round one KO loss. Now, last year, he beat Ante Delizia. He beat him twice. They fought twice last year as part of the PFL season. The second time was by decision. The first time he knocked him out. His prior fight, Jamal Jones, 2021, also a round two TKO win. To be honest, Jamal Jones did not come into that fight looking very in shape. He looked very gassed in round two was very compromised and didn't really get hurt as much as was he was just exhausted so jamal or jamel i'm not sure how you pronounce that name he was a good competition yuri prozoska good competition that's why he's in the ufc jamal jones not so much now one thing i like a lot about bruno capeloza he's got great finishing ability six of his last seven wins were by a tko finish not submission finish a lot of power in his hands at the same time he's got to be careful he doesn't overcommit, get off balance and get countered like he did against yuri prozoska i don't want to say he's chinny i don't want to say he's got a chin issue but it is the one weakness i have identified his last two losses were by TKO 2018-2015 respectively so it's been a while but nonetheless he trades and at times he leaves his chin wide open now looking at Stuart Austin born in Litchfield England he's currently fighting out of London England he has fought at heavyweight and light heavyweight in my honest opinion He's more of a light heavyweight, but now moving up to heavyweight, maybe because of demand, maybe because he didn't have as many opportunities at light heavyweight. As a light heavyweight, he was shredded. He looked good for that division. He's 0-1 as an amateur. He's a veteran, though, has fought in a lot of different promotions. He fought in Cage Warriors, BA, MMA, EFC, Bellator, and obviously along with the PFL. He has a 1-1 record in Bellator. His most notable opponents, he's fought some people you're going to recognize. Johnny Walker, 2018 round one TKO loss. That was in UC MMA. This guy has fought in every single damn promotion you can imagine. He got destroyed by an inside knee. So if you can imagine Johnny Walker lets he's a tie clinch hit and hammers our boy here, Austin, with a heavy knee inside. He goes right down. A few follow-up strikes from Johnny Walker, but it was called pretty quickly by the referee. Prior fight, Dolce Lingambula. 
Another guy you recognize, that was an EFC, 2017 round two KO loss. In that fight, he has Dolce dead in round one. He's fully mounted, landing ground and pound strikes. The referee's like right there about to step in. The broadcast is like, when are they going to step in? But at the same time, Dolce was the champion at that time. So I guess the ref was giving him a little more slack. They get to round two. And yes, there's an argument that could be made that he probably could have finished the fight there in round one. Now we go to round two and lo and behold, what happens? Dolce gets the takedown. He gets to a nice dominant position on the ground over Stuart Austin. Austin, and the ref comes in and stops it and it's like oh damn dude the, the ref gave Dolce every opportunity in, in round one and round two when the shoe was on the other foot he calls the fight I thought Stuart Austin was getting hurt yes but he deserved a little more time because in round one the ref gave more time to Dolce in any case he loses that fight round two TK loss on the ground another prior fight Renan Ferreira 2021 round one 31 second KO loss yikes that was his last fight that was PFL 2021 number eight it was a one-two combination didn't look like it was very much behind it it was just a simple one-two combination knocks him down Ferreira goes over to do a ground and pound strike and holds himself up doesn't even land anything else and that was it dude was out I believe he's a little chinny I think that's one of his weaknesses I don't know that he can go up to the heavyweight division and successfully crack with a guy like Bruno Capeloza another one of his prior fights this one's a terrible camera angle not the best film quality if you watch it you'll see what I'm talking about he fought Satoshi Ishii 2020 decision win of all the wins in his career, this one is probably the one that's the most respectable. This guy had at least like a 23 or 24 and 12 type of record. But when you watch the fight, the Japanese fighter is tired. I think all of round two goes by. Maybe he throws 10 total strikes. Maybe he lands two or three. He was so gassed after round one, pretty gassed in round three. And you could make an argument that maybe he won the fight. He gets the takedowns, especially in round one and two. Our boy Stuart Austin gets back up. He's also very tired. It wasn't the best of fights. When you watch that fight, I think it sort of gives you a glimpse. Now, granted, that was two years ago, but still a glimpse in sort of the talent level of Stuart Austin. He had a rough time there against a guy who was fully exhausted, but his last two Two wins were against this guy Satoshi Ishii who's 24-12-1. Decent record but never fought like in Bellator or high level promotion. And then the prior fight Yuri Andre. Yuri Andre right now is something like 8-13 and 13 or 8-14. and 14. Not a very good record. The guy also has never fought a very high level promotion. So he's coming in here with some wins over no one. Having lost to Johnny Walker yes and having lost to Dalcha, Having lost to Ferreira. I believe he comes in here and he's going to be eaten alive by Bruno Capeloza. The money line has just come out in this fight. It's minus 500 for Bruno Capeloza. Makes sense. You can get Stuart Austin at plus 375 on the other side. It's a parlay piece for me. I have a lot of confidence in Bruno Capeloza. Do you want to bet it straight up at, you know, three, four, five units? That's kind of rich for my liking. Um, I'll definitely parlay him. The only way this goes bad is if Bruno Capeloza gets a little reckless. He gets a little irresponsible and wants to trade with Stuart Austin and Austin happens to land something. Now, the one thing I do have to give to Stuart Austin, the one positive about his game, he has fought some decent competition and he's fought in some pretty good promotions. He hasn't been fighting on the regional scene. I mean, Cage Warriors, EFC, EMC, NAACP, MLB, NBA. I'm just kidding. But the point is he's fought in a lot of promotions. He has some experience. He's fought a two different weight classes, light heavyweight, now heavyweight. Again, don't think that's a positive for him, but the point is he's been around the block. It's not brand new to him. The light shouldn't be too bright here for this occasion. It is a small octagon. They're doing this down at the eSports Arena in Arlington, Texas, which I believe is part of the Arlington Dallas Cowboys like sports complex. There's going to be a lot of people there, small venues, so he shouldn't be overwhelmed with the spotlight. Now, my concern for Stuart Austin, he's 3-3 three three in his last six fights, going all the way back to 2016, I believe. He hasn't won three fights in a row since 2014. He's got some durability concerns. He's been finished by TKO in six of his last seven losses. He got KO'd in 31 seconds in his last fight back in August. 
And most of his KO losses happened early in the fight, like early round one. The last two wins he had, we mentioned before, pretty low level competition. Yuri Andre, 8 and 13, and Satoshi Ishii, 24, 12 and 1. As for the video library, the fights we watched right down this film, we watched Austin vs. Walker, 2018, Austin vs. Ferreira, 2021. Just the highlights. I couldn't find the full film. But there's a highlight link there, so you can go see the highlights of that fight. Not too long. He gets dusted pretty quickly, 31 seconds. Austin vs. Ishii, 2020. Austin vs. Dalcha, 2017. Kapaloza versus Prajashka, 2018. Kapaloza versus Delizia, the first fight, 2021, where he knocks out Delizia. And then Kapaloza versus Jones, 2021. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those seven links are available down below as part of our free video library. Last few details on these two fighters. Kapaloza has been a pro for 11 years. He's got a kickboxing style. His biggest strength, I believe, is his KO power. His weakness? Striking defense, especially when things get wild. He leaves himself open for counters. As for Stuart Austin, been a pro for 12 years. Not much of a grappler, not much of a kicker. Just a traditional stand-up boxer who uses an orthodox stance. His biggest strength, I believe, is that he's balanced. That's a nice way of putting it. He's fought a variety of different opponents, different promotions. He's serviceable on the ground. He got up first Ishii. Ishii took him down a few times. Not that Kapalo's going to be looking to take the fight to the ground, but he's a balanced fighter. I'll give him that. He punches okay. He's decent on the feet. He's serviceable. His weakness, the chin. We talked about it. Now, the side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, these guys are about the same. Now, the thing that has an edge for Kapaloza is he won a belt last year. He won the $1 million prize in the PFL. We got to give him the edge there for experience and obviously the winning experience. For Fighter IQ, again, Kapaloza has parlayed his career into a $1 million payday, so I have to give him the edge there in experience and Fighter IQ. For cardio, that's an area where I see these guys are probably very similar. I have a sneaky suspicion that if Bruno Kapaloza gets tested in like late round two, round three, he's going to get very sloppy. That's the biggest criticism I have of him. He gets a little sloppy even when he's on the offensive, leaves himself open, so I don't know that round two round three looks good for either fighter here Stuart austin i've seen some issues with him and for Capaloza, it's still a question mark clearly Capaloza has the edge in finishing for boxing i also give the edge to Capaloza. he hits harder than Stuart austin i believe his boxing style when he's at least focused a little tighter nice jab last but not least who has more heart you know i've seen Stuart austin go out in his shield seems like a tough dude he, he's had a lot of time since august to recover as for Capaloza, same thing if you could bet the fight the under, that's a prop to look at, under one and a half, or the fight just does not go the distance. I think Capaloza by TKO is an excellent prop to look at as well. For the upset prop, it would be Stuart Austin by TKO. He doesn't have many submissions in his background. Capaloza, that would be the one way I see him losing. I would be surprised if it goes the distance. I think Bruno Capaloza makes the connection at some point early. Round one finish, TKO, Bruno Capaloza for Stuart Austin. Going to be a tough day at the office. Capaloza by round one TKO. That's the breakdown of this fight, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. The co-main event is going to feature a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between the English fighter Brandon Lofname and Ryoji Kudo from Japan. Kudo's 10-2-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. A big dog here in the money line at plus 375. He hails from Tokyo, Japan specifically, 29 years old, 5-7 in height. He's out of Tribe Tokyo MMA. As for Brandon Lofname, 21-4 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. Big favorite here in the money line at minus 500. He hails from Manchester, England, 32 years old, 5-9 in height with a 72-inch reach. He's out of Manchester Predators. As for the public votes coming on Tapology, Lofname is the big favorite. Makes sense. 95% of the votes coming in for Lofname, only 5% for Kudo. We also like Brandon Lofname to win the fight, maybe by decision though, because I do believe Kudo is pretty durable. We'll give him all he can handle for the three rounds. But Lofname, big fan of him last year, watching the 2021 season of PFL. Thought he had a chance to go to the finals, lost in the semifinals. We'll talk more about that in a second. But good overall fighter, like him a lot, high energy, very passionate. As for the background of these two fighters, let's talk about Brandon Lofname first. He has a 3-0 amateur record, 12-year pro career. He fought on Dana White Contender Series in 2019, and it was a good win over Bill Algio, who's in the UFC, but it wasn't a finish. It went to decision, and so he did not get a contract. 
Prior to the PFL, he also fought in ACD and BAMMA. His most notable opponents, he lost last year in the semifinals of the PFL against Movid Kobolayev by split decision. Now, Kobolayev went on to win the entire thing, get the million-dollar contract in his weight class. Split decision loss. It was very close. It could have gone either way. And Brandon came into that fight as a plus-120 underdog. Great showing, good accountability for himself, very hard-fought fight. Prior fight, we want to talk about Bill Algio, 2019 decision win on Dana White Contender Series. He beat the hell out of Bill Algio. Now, he didn't finish him, and Algio showed a lot of heart. But he had him on the brink of finishing him. If that fight went another round, he probably finishes Bill Algio. Algio is 2-2 two two in the UFC. He's currently in the roster. Brandon came to that fight as a minus 270 favorite. The one thing in that fight that was noticeable, though, was that Bill Algio was able to land some pretty hard lower leg kicks. You got to wonder here, with Kudo coming in, will he commit to the lower leg kicks? Because that is an area of Brandon's game that he's got to shore up. He tends to just take those kicks at first instead of checking them or adjusting. And that could pile up pretty quickly. Next thing you know, you got you know a lower leg injury. And one more fight for Brandon Lafayette. Anyone want to talk about Shimon Marias. Last year, 2021, round one KO win. He came in as a minus 165 favorite. The damage happens when him and Marias are in the middle of the cage. Small exchange. Doesn't seem to even hit Marias that hard, but catches him perfectly. Marias kind of falls back, a little bit wobbled against the cage. Now you got Brandon Lofning with that high energy output. He comes in, starts raining down strikes on Shimon Marias. And if you watch the fight on replay, he leaves Marias against the cage looking like the dude was just hit with like an injection of some type of tranquilizer. He just falls kind of against the cage, heads over here, backs over here. He's barely awake. Pretty nasty knockout. Highlight knockout for Brandon Lofning. And it shows you what he could do. The guy's got some power in his hands. And if he smells blood in the water, he's looking for the finish. In that moment, Brandon Lofnane just shows you the potential of him. And again, I mentioned before, I believe this kid has UFC potential. I'm not surprised if he makes his way to the UFC or to Bellator at some point because the guy's got a lot of potential. I've already talked about some of the positives on Brandon Lofnane, but just to go over some details, he's a very active fighter. He fought three times last year, did not fight at all in 2020. I think if my memory serves me right, he had an injury going on, but we also had COVID. So both those factors combined, he did not fight at all in 2020. He also fought three MMA fights in 2019. He's an excellent wrestler. I mentioned before, he doesn't do much wrestling or grappling in the fights. It's not his preference. But if the fight gets to the ground or gets to a grappling exchange, I think he'll have the advantage here over Kudo, who's much more of a karate guy. He switches stances a lot. I love the way he does this to mix things up, give his opponent different looks. So he'll start off the fight in orthodox stance. He'll switch to southpaw. He'll go back and forth. He's very comfortable in both stances. In terms of fighter experience for this matchup, Brandon's going to have a big advantage, having fought 25 total fights compared to 13 for Kudo, and I believe he's fought the better competition. Now, my concerns for Brandon Lofning, he does leave himself open for counters. When he gets a little bit wild at times, he gets emotional. Maybe he drops around, wants to come back and you know make a statement. He's wide open for counters. I could see him getting clipped and hurt. He hasn't been finished before by TKO. He's got a good chin. He's very, very durable. But the reality is he puts himself in positions at times where he could definitely get clipped with a counter. And lastly, I love the passion that Brandon fights with. He comes in there riled up after the fight's over. He usually is talking a lot, throwing his mouthpiece, passionate guy, has that foreign accent, you know, that English accent, which is awesome. But I wonder at times, does he also let his emotions and passion get the best of him, distract him? Still a young fighter, 32 years old, still growing, making improvements. I like to see him tone that down at times a little bit, really harness his energy and focus on who his assignment is, and don't get too worked up. Because again, if he gets down in a fight, down round one, round two, he has that part of him that sort of gets sketched out, and all of a sudden he just wants to go crazy. And I believe that could get him into trouble at times, especially against elite level fighters. Not in this fight here, but down the road, that could be one of his Achilles heels. As for Ryoji Kudo from Japan, he had a 4-0 amateur record. He went pro 2017, so only five years of pro experience compared to 12 years for Brandon Lofning. This fight will mark his PFL debut. He fought three times for one championships and won all three bouts. Prior to this PFL debut, he also fought for TTF Challenge and Shudo 2021. He's coming off a decision lost last summer in his last fight. He fights in a right-handed stance, karate style, as we mentioned before, with a high guard. 
We'll talk about one opponent on his background, Jerry Alzim, 2019 decision win. That fight was held in one Warrior Series 8. He did enough to win the fight, but it was not impressive. And I think that's important to note because Jerry Alzim is an average mixed martial artist, not Bellator material, PFL material, or UFC material, but average. And in that fight there, when I looked over it, I didn't see much of anything, nothing that sort of popped out to me, nothing bad, nothing really good either. The kicking game was decent. But looking at the opponent, I couldn't help to ask myself, is Brennan Lofnane anywhere near that opponent? Absolutely not. Brennan is much better than that guy. And in that fight, Kudo, you could see him showing his amateur skills. Not really a pro at this level yet. It's nice he's making his debut. We don't have enough fighters from Japan right now in the major PFL MMA. We lack enough Japanese fighters in the top promotion. So I'm glad he's taking this opportunity here. But the reality is Brennan Lofnane is a much better fighter than when he's faced before. And in this case here, Terry Oslem, 2019 decision win. Kudo should have finished a guy like that. And he ends up getting taken down at the end of round one. A few times he initiates the grappling, like he's trying to wrestle, but can't do much with it. And then again, at the end of round one he gets reversed and thrown to the ground i do like the karate i do like the lower leg kicks i like the kicking game in general he's very busy with it but brandon lofting i believe he walks through some of that gets in the face of kudo and forces that to be an uglier close good old-fashioned fist fight and in that case that's brandon lofting's wheelhouse some things i like about the japanese fighter he has an active kicking game both guys want to go forward i wonder who gets the advantage i imagine whoever clocks the other guy first hard enough that the other person will start backing up and i believe that person would be brandon lofting leading the dance whereas you're gonna have ryoji kudo sort of out of his element having to back up to adjust and in the case of Kudo, I'm not sure his power to finish people will translate over here to the PFL, but looking at his tapology, his last three wins were all by TKO. He's got some ability to finish people. That's always a big question when you see guys go from regional scenes or low-level promotions, when they go and take a step up to Bellator or PFL or the UFC, does the power translate? In some cases it does. I'm not sure it does here. You don't see many knockouts at this weight class. Now my concerns for Kudo, this will be by far his hardest matchup. A big step up in competition. Now is he ready for it? We'll see. The guy's got a decent game. He's 10-2-1 for a reason. High winning percentage, has some finishes. But man, Brandon Lofton is a big step up in competition. To make his PFL debut against this guy, not going to be easy night for him. Put it that way. He appeared to fatigue a lot in the fight that I watched against Oslem. Round two, he came out not nearly as light on his feet, wasn't throwing as many kicks, looked a little bit tired, was walking more flat-footed. Maybe that was just that fight, and that was about three years ago. But against Brandon Lofton, if you get tired, you're in trouble. Like Bill Algio, for example, in that fight in Dating White Contender Series, Bill Algio is a pretty decent fighter, 2-2 two two the UFC, but he got worn out by Brandon in that fight. Brandon has that wear-you-out type of fighting style. And lastly, Fukudo doesn't have much of a takedown game. I've seen him try to grapple people, but then doesn't get him down. He's more of a karate guy. That makes sense. For Brandon Lofnane, he wants the entire fight in the feet. I'll be surprised if the fight actually hits the ground at some point. And if it does, it should be brief. The fights we watched, I read down this film, we watched Lofnane versus Marias, 2021. Lofnane versus Algeo, 2018. And Kudo versus Alzim, 2019. To watch those three fights, go down below in the description here on YouTube, and you'll see those three links available as part of our free video library. The last few notes on these two fighters. For experience, I got the edge to Brandon Lofname. He's fought double the amount of fights and fought the better opponents. For fighter IQ, same kind of rationale. He's fought better opponents. He's been there longer. He has more experience, three years older. I believe fighter IQ and experience on the side of Brandon Lofname. As for cardio, another advantage for Brandon. He's shown he can go three rounds with some of the best guys in the PFL. High volume, pressure and pace. Ryoji Kudo looks good in round one of the fights that I've watched of him but I've seen him slow down a lot in round two. So I believe the cardio advantage is also on the side of Brandon. For the finishing ability, I believe Brandon Lofting is a better finisher. He's been a decision recently. I think Kudo is going to have enough durability to take the distance. Now, who's the better finisher? Yeah, Lofting has the advantage there. But in this fight, I think it's hard as he's going to hit Kudo. It's going to be a bloodbath at times. It's going to be a tough fight toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I don't believe it's a finish here. But if the finishing advantage, I've had to choose which one, i say Brandon Lofting has a slight advantage in that department. As for boxing, I also side with Brandon Lofting. I think he throws with more power. 
Now, if we're talking about kickboxing, then of course Kudo has a better kicking game than Lofnane, who doesn't really kick much at all. We mentioned before the weak point for Lofnane does not defend lower leg kicks very well. If Kudo comes in here and attacks the lead leg, depends on how he goes, because he could switch stances, right? That could be at least a way to disrupt Lofnane, make things a little bit more difficult for him. But just straight up boxing and striking, the advantage is with Brandon Lofnane. He's the better finisher, he punches with power, and the volume. Man, the volume's going to be crazy. Round two, round three, if Kudo slows down, doesn't have the cardio, the volume's going to be so much on the side of Lofning. And lastly, who has more heart? Who wants it more? I believe the young Japanese fighter here, 29 years old, coming from halfway around the world from Japan, is coming in here with a lot of pride. If you know anything about those Japanese, the samurais, that whole tradition, that whole history, those people fought. They fought to the death. They have a lot of honor and pride. That runs in the loins. As for Brandon Lofning from England, same type of deal, man. This guy is a roughneck. If either guy, for example, got submitted, they'd probably have to be completely put to sleep because they're not going to tap out. They're both going to be tough fighters. So from a heart standpoint, I give the edge to neither fighter. Though if you've watched Brandon Lofnane fight before, man, the dude fights with a lot of passion, a lot of heart. The props I like for this fight, I like the fight going the distance. I don't know what that number is yet. It's not out quite yet, but the fight going the decision, I believe that's a good prop to look at. And then Brandon Lofnane by decision. By decision, at least you'll probably get something closer to the pick-up money because at minus 500, you're not going to want to bet this straight up. But it is a parlay piece. And that's the breakdown for this fight, guys. Once again, we'd like Brandon Lofname to win the fight by decision. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Take advantage of our free video library below. Give us some feedback. Do you think the Japanese fighter here deserves more credit? Do you think the English fighter takes it? Or can Ryoji Kudo, the Japanese fighter, come in here and flip the scales and cash some tickets at plus 275 on the money line? In my opinion, I think Lofname is as close to a lock as you can get. I like Lofname to win the fight by decision. We'll see you guys soon. We've got a heavyweight battle between Ante Delizia from Croatia and Matthias Shuffle from Brazil. Shuffle goes by Bufa. He's 15-7 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A big dog here, plus 300 on the money line. He hails from Piranha, Brazil, 29 years old, 6'2 in height with a 75-inch reach. He trains out of CM Systems. As for Ante Delizia, who goes by Walking Trouble, he's 19-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A big favorite here at minus 400 on the money line. He hails from Croatia, 31 years old, 6'5 in height with a 79-inch reach. So he'll have a 3-inch height advantage and about a 4-inch reach advantage. He trains out of Gladiator, Croatia. As for the votes coming in on Tapology, Delizia is a big favorite, getting 97% of the votes here, only 3% coming in for Shuffle. I do like Delizia, but this is one of the spots that I'm going to caution you on parlaying or over-parlaying. And obviously at minus 400, you don't want to bet it straight up either maybe the best prop here is the fight not going the distance these guys are both bangers or heavyweights delicia doesn't have the best finishing record but matthias shuffle seems to have a bit of a chin issue at the same time i believe delicia also has some chin issues we'll talk about it as we break down this fight as for their basic information delicia has 11 years pro experience compared to 10 years for matthias as for the fighting style for delicia he's a boxer he does do some grappling but he's most effective on the feet when he's using his hands and he's just straight up boxing. As for Matthias Scheffel, more of a kickboxer, has a nice lower leg kicking game, mixes it up between his hands and his feet. Good overall activity, good footwork. The big positive for Delizia, his experience. Fought some very good fighters, fought some better competition. For Matthias Scheffel, one of his best attributes is his length, long arms, good reach, good long leg kicks. As for the weak parts for Delizia, he tends to have deficiency in speed, especially when he gets hit hard, starts getting a little bit groggy. No head movement, tends to be a standing target. As for Matthias Scheffel, his issue is durability, his chin. Hasn't checked out in recent fights, we'll talk about about that as we break down this film. Let's look at the background of these two fighters. As for Ante Delizia, he's from Croatia where he currently still lives and trains. He went pro in 2011. He's fought in Ryzen, M1, and KSW, which are all very competitive promotions. His most notable opponents, he fought Marcin Taburo, 2015 round one leg injury loss. Taburo's currently in the UFC. He also fought Bruno Capeloza last year, twice lost to him both times. One time by a round one TKO, the second time it went to decision. And it was a tough decision loss. The things I like about Ante Delizia, he's got tremendous octagon experience. He's fought against very high level competition, especially compared to his opponent in this fight. He does have KO power in his hands. He has an effective submission attack as well. He looks like a boxer initially when you first watch him, but watch the tape in this guy. He does like to grapple, he likes to mix it up, and he will look for a submission when the opportunity is there. 
He usually has a height and reach advantage. In this fight, he'll have a three inch height advantage and a four inch reach advantage. My concerns for Ante Delizia, durability is the first thing. He was finished three of his last four losses by some kind of a TKO. Now they were all spread out over years. So it wasn't like they were back to back or close together, but it was the same look. He gets to an exchange with another guy. He gets clipped, slow head movement, doesn't recover, goes down. 31, he's not by any means past his prime, but those knockouts start to add up. That's my only concern for him in this fight is that Matthias Shuffle somehow catches him or clips him and tests that chin. As I mentioned before, he tends to be robotic in his movement, especially when he gets a little bit fatigued or he gets hurt or gets pressured. His head movement is just non-existent. Against Capaloza last year in the first fight when he gets knocked out, he gets clipped. Okay, that happens, but then did not show good survival skills. You know those guys who you get them hurt, they look to grapple, they mix things up, they survive. Against Capaloza, once he got crushed one time, there was no surviving. He could not come back. He couldn't find a path to recovery and ends up getting finished in that fight. As for Matthias Shuffle, the Brazilian, he's currently fighting out of Piranha, Brazil. He fights out of an orthodox stance. He's got no amateur experience. He went pro 2012, so does about 10 year pro experience. Some notable opponents in his recent past, Azamat Mirzakhanov, 2021 round one KO loss on Dana White Contender Series. He got clipped by a very basic overhand right. Now, up until that point, he looked good. He had range, he had size, he had distance over Azamat. Azamat closed distance, lands one or two hard punches. He goes down quickly. The referee steps in pretty quickly as well, which is common on Dana White Contender Series. They don't let them get too beat up in that series. But nonetheless, he looked good until he didn't look good. He came in as a plus 380 underdog. So he was not favored to win that fight by any means. Had a huge height and reach advantage. Looked good. Looked light on his feet. And then boom, one or two punches and he goes down. Now, two of his last three wins were versus Jose Rodrigo Gulke, 2021 round one TKO. I mentioned that because Jose is 22 and 23 overall. Another win for him. Marcelo Cruz, 2019 decision win. Cruz is 10 and 10 overall. Another recent opponent is Tapology, Konstantin Adresdev, 2018 split decision win. Konstantin is 16 and 14 overall. You get the theme there. He's fighting guys that are literally 500 level opponents. Getting the wins, yes, or split decision wins. But in essence, those are his wins. He doesn't have a win over any quality opponent yet. And when he's fought better competition like the case of Azamat, he got starched. So we haven't seen enough from Matias to say, oh, it's a great live dog spot. My concern is more on onto Delizia's side is sometimes his chin could be a little fragile. He probably wins this fight, but I'm not as confident in Delizia to win this fight as I am in some of the spots in his card. I will still parlay it in one or two parlays to have a little fun, have a little action. But this fight right here, for some reason, I just don't have as much confidence in Delizia and I'm a little worried about Matthias Shuffle, who's only 29 years old, still making some progress, come from Brazil. Those guys know how to fight down there. Could he come in here, catch onto Delizia and test the chin? It is heavyweight. So again, heavyweights tend to be more volatile than any other weight division. Some things I like about Shuffle, very good athleticism for that size. Now he's undersized in this matchup, but still a big guy. He moves well, good footwork, comes in and out, good leg kicks, has decent volume, and he does have some finishing ability, as do all heavyweights. Now he's not an amazing finisher, doesn't have a high finish rate, but he's gotten some guys on the ground. He's knocked some guys out. And the same for Ante Delizia. Because it's a heavyweight match, you got to look at the prop of the fight, possibly knock with the distance. Now, my concern from Matthias Shuffle, we mentioned it. Durability. Five of his seven losses have been by TKO within the first two rounds. And he's faced very low level competition. He's faced guys that are middle league 500 level fighters, not Bellator level, not UFC level. And when he fought the Dana White Contender Series, he got starched in round one. The fights we watched around this film, we watched Delizia versus Capilosa, the first fight, 2021. Delizia versus Suman Tufa, 2019. And Shuffle versus Mirzakhanov, 2019. To watch those three fights, you'll find the links down below as part of our free video library. The last few thoughts I have these two fighters. Ante Delizia has the fighting experience and fighter IQ advantage in this matchup. For cardio, you know, I want to say Delizia has better cardio because I've seen him more and I've seen him go the distance. But quite frankly, Mathis Sheffield looks like he's got pretty good cardio too. Haven't seen him go the full distance, but he looks like he's light on his feet, has good cardio, has good energy. So the cardio level, I would say they're both about equal. As for finishing ability, again, I want to say Ante Delizia has better finishing ability, but he also has some recent decisions. And for Mathias Sheffield, he has had some finishes in his lower level promotions. Does it translate over here to PFL? Not sure about that. I would give a slight edge in finishing to Ante Delizia, but I'm not surprised if this fight ends up being a little bit boring. Get some 
grappling, it goes to full distance. That would benefit, I believe, Delisia, who has a fighter IQ advantage and has a grappling advantage. As for straight up boxing, I think Matthias Shuffle has a slight advantage in the boxing. His technique's pretty good, a little faster with his hands. Now, the power advantage maybe is on the side of Delisia, but volume and the ability to mix it up and strike with the feet and the hands, I believe that advantage is on the side of Shuffle. As for grappling, I just mentioned before, I believe Delisia is an underrated grappler. He does look to grapple against his opponents. He'll get him against Cage, he'll rough him up. Dirty boxing, look, he can look for submissions. So the grappling advantage is there with Delisia over the Brazilian Shuffle. And last but not least, who has more heart? I believe Delisia has a ton of heart. You've seen him go out in his sword. He's not an older fighter, but he comes off as an older fighter just the way he carries himself. So he's got a lot of pride, he's got a lot of heart. And as for Matthias Shuffle, he doesn't look like a weak guy by any means. He's very young, 29 years old. He's going out on his sword. He's been knocked out. He's been finished. But both guys seem to check out and have a lot of heart. The two props I like for this fight, the fight not going to decision. Again, heavyweight battle, most of the time just not going to decision. And secondly, the TKO prop for Ante Delizia. If he could tag Matthias in the chin the right way, Matthias has shown that it doesn't take much to get him down. And just a reminder, the chin is the issue that I have with both fighters, but I believe Ante Delizia has a little bit better of a chin here than Matthias Sheffo, who hasn't fought tough opponents, a little bit younger, got knocked out very easily at Daylight Contender Series, whereas Ante Delizia got knocked out last year by Capaloza, but Capaloza Lows, my goodness, he throws bombs. That's the breakdown, guys. Again, we like Auntie Delisia to win the fight at minus 400. A little chalky. Be careful with this one. I'm not going to be rushing to the window to bet minus 400 on Auntie Delisia, nor be putting in too many parlays. Well, as usual, we put all of our bets up on BetMMA Tips, and we also usually tweet out our bets prior to the event. So you'll see what we're going to be doing here with Delisia. But again, not going to overplay this. I like him to win. He's the veteran here, more experienced. But Matthias Shuffle, when you watch him fight, you'll know what I'm talking about. Watch the fight Data My Contender Series. He looks good until it's not good, but he looks pretty damn good when he's fresh on his feet. Good striking, good movement, good volume. So we'll see what happens here. But be cautious with this fight here i like the leisure again to win the fight if you haven't done so already please like and subscribe Next up, we have the first of two headway fights in the main card between Renan Ferreira from Brazil, who goes by Problema, and Jamal Jones, who goes by the Beast from the United States. Jones is 12 and 7 overall, 3 2 in his last five fights. A big dog here at plus 300 on the money line. He's out of Spokane, Washington. 34 years old, 6 foot in height with a 75 inch reach. He trains out of Sick Jitsu. As for the Brazilian, he's 8 and 2 overall, 3 1 and 1 in his last five fights. A big favorite here at minus 400 on the money line. He hails out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. 32 years old, so two years younger, 6 foot 8 in height, 8 inch height advantage, and an 85 inch reach, a 10 inch reach advantage in this matchup. And he trains out of a very well known gym in brazil called team nugara as for the votes coming in on tapology by no surprise for her is the big favorite getting 96 percent of the votes here only four percent coming in for jones i do agree a lot of confidence here in Bernard ferrara and part of that confidence i hate to say is because i'm not a big believer in jamal jones he's a serviceable opponent he's in the pfl he belongs in the pfl and he's getting served up to good opponents like Bernard ferrara and i don't believe he's got a chance to win this fight now he does have some ground and pound strikes that are heavy he does have he does have some tko finishes we'll talk about this matchup is very lopsided i believe the money line is about accurate this will be a parlay piece for us he's not going to bet it straight up a $400 bet to make 100 bucks, not a good investment. Let's take a quick peek here at the profiles of these two fighters. For Renan Ferreira, he's from Brazil, as we mentioned, still fights out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. No amateur record, he went pro 2013, so he's a nine-year pro career. Some of his most notable opponents, he fought 2021 against Stuart Austin, who's also on this card. He came in as a minus 405 favorite and knocked him out in 31 seconds. Very impressive victory. A prior fight, Carl Simonotufa, 2021 decision win. He was a big favorite in that fight and did not get the finish. Now, Carl is a tough dude, not easy to get out of there. He was a minus 455 favorite. He dominated the entire fight on the ground, on the feet, got taken down several times, but got back up quickly. And a few times, knocked down Carl, looked like the fight was about to end, but Carl just being a tough guy, being that Samoan, Hawaiian descent, was not an easy out, so he gets a decision win in that fight. But overall, dominated the entire fight, looked pretty good, and showed good cardio late in the fight. He fought Jared Vandera back in LFA in 2019, round two submission win. Of course, Vandera is currently in the UFC, not doing so well, but he's in the UFC. He came in as a minus 190 favorite in that fight. And one more fight to talk about. You may have caught this fight last year if you were watching the PFL. Fabricio 
Wordham, 2021, no contest. Renan Ferreira taps out. He taps, but the referee doesn't see it. The fight keeps going. He ends up TKOing the guy, and then the fight stopped at that point. They go to the replay booth, and they determine, well, it's a no contest because the fight should have been stopped when Renan Ferreira tapped. But consider this. He taps, and then it's like, okay, I guess the fight's not stopping. He deals with it, keeps fighting, keeps going, and gets a legitimate TKO finish. Crazy how he was on the verge of literally getting put to sleep, was getting choked out, was in a bad position, tapped, didn't freak out, stayed composed enough to keep fighting against TKO finish. Probably shouldn't have tapped in the first place. Now, some people could argue, well, because he tapped is why Fabricio let go of the submission. Not really. Fabricio Wordham was gassed out himself. He got legitimate TKO in that fight. The referee just missed the tap. But anyway, that was last year. A weird no contest on his record. The things I like about Renan Ferreira, he's very durable. Only been finished one time in his career, and that was by submission. He's got an excellent finish rate, 63% to be exact. He has seven finishes in 11 fights. I'm counting that TKO win over Wordham. He did get the finish there, just a quirky fight. So he's got very good, strong hands, submission ability, and TKO ability. Has definitely fought the better strength of schedule when you compare him to Jamal Jones. Now, Jamal Jones has fought some good fighters, but Ferreira has simply fought the better competition, guys in the UFC, and so on. He will have a very big size and reach advantage. 10 inches on the reach and 8 inch in height. Moves pretty good for a big man. Doesn't slow down too quickly. So that height and reach is going to be a big problem for Jamal Jones, who will be the smaller fighter. will have to close a lot of distance to get into Ferreira's pocket. And I believe Ferreira will be able to pick him apart from a distance. The few concerns I have for Ferreira, his submission defense. He's only lost by submission. And in the fight against Wardham, even though it was a no contest, he did get submitted in that fight and did tap out. So submission defense would be one of the chinks in his armor and lastly because he's such a large man you have to worry about cardio he's shown good cardio but at six foot eight that big body he's well built will he get fatigued will he get taken down be on his back he was taken down by carl but carl wasn't good enough to keep him down he got back up in this fight here jamal jones will look for takedowns he catches leg kicks and gets takedowns that's one of the things he likes to do so the only other concern for ferrer besides the submission defense would be does he get tired late in the fight haven't seen it but again with that big frame and that big muscly body you got to worry about him getting tired late in the fight as for Jamal Jones, who's fighting up Spokane, Washington, he went 3-0 as an amateur with all three of those wins by finish. He went pro 2013, so he has nine years pro experience. He's fought in CFFC, KOTC, CES, and now currently in the PFL. He fights out of a southpaw stance. Some notable opponents in his tapology. He beat Clayton Abreu 2021, TKO win in round one. He dominated Clayton in that fight. Came in, caught a leg kick, took him to the ground, pounded him out. Less than a minute later, he gets the win. He was a plus 150 underdog. Prior fight, Bruno Capeloza 2021, round two TKO loss. He just simply didn't look good in that fight. And I believe that's a theme with Jamal Jones. Against okay opponents, lower level opponents, he can hold his own against guys like Bruno Capeloza or guys like William Knight or Mike Rodriguez, Anton Berzin. We'll talk about these guys one by one. He comes up short. And in that fight against Bruno Capeloza, he is so gassed in round two. He fought William Knight 2019, round one TKO loss. That was in CES 59. Knight's currently in the UFC, as we know. Mike Rodriguez 2018, round one TKO loss again. Rodriguez is currently 2-5-1 in the UFC and on a three-fight losing streak. Not the best UFC caliber guy, but definitely good enough to knock out Jones in round one. One more fight. Anton Berzin, 2017, round two TKO loss. Anton Berzin lost on Dana White Contender Series in 2017 versus Kennedy Ninjuku. Another example, you got Mike Rodriguez, Anton Berzin, William Knight, Bruno Capeloza. What do they all have in common? They're decent level fighters. They're not even championship level guys in the UFC or Bellator. Bruno Capeloza won the championship last year for PFL. Got to give him the shout out there. The point is, when he fights guys that are somewhat decent or who could take his first few hard punches, some things I do like about Jamal Jones, he can catch a leg kick and turn it into a takedown. He did it against a bro and turned it into a ground and pound finish. Very impressive. And when he's on top of the ground, he's a heavy dude on top. He's got a heavy upper body. His ground and pound is nasty. No matter who's on the ground underneath of him, when he's fresh, those ground and pound strikes could be disaster for no matter who it is. So if he can get Renan Ferrer on his back for some reason and land a few heavy strikes, that could be his path to victory. 
My concerns for Jamal Jones, his cardio has not looked good. After round one, he hits a wall. And we talked about it. He comes up short against solid opponents. When he fights better guys, he doesn't seem to show up enough, doesn't have the cardio, doesn't have the fighter IQ, and he simply can't beat the better guys. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Ferreira versus Austin, Ferreira versus Sumano Tufu, Jones versus Abreu, and Jones versus Capaloza. To watch those four fights, you'll see four links down below in our description here on YouTube as part of our free video library. The last few notes I have these two fighters are side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, IQ-wise, and cardio give the edge there to Renan Ferrer. We talked about some of that. From an experience standpoint, Renan Ferrer has fought better competition and has a better winning percentage. For fighter IQ, I don't like the fact that Jamal Jones comes into the fight looking good in round one and has a huge dip in cardio in round two and round three. It's a lack of training. It's a lack of cardio training, a lack of running. The bottom line is it's not a good look and it's a big issue. Cardio can be one of the biggest issues for a fighter to have. It's hard to overcome. The fight gets to round two, round three. They're not the same. For finishing ability, I give these guys about the equal rating. Renan Ferrer has excellent finishes, a higher winning percentage, but if someone's on their back with Jamal Jones on top, he's going to finish them. So both guys have good finishing ability. For boxing, Renan Ferrer is not only the cleaner boxer with the longer reach, I believe he has the cardio to still look good in round two and round three and still have good boxing. Jamal Jones, he depends upon that one big punch to try to hurt somebody. He'll throw big punches, he'll duck his head, big overhand rights, not very technically sound, but he does have some knockout power. For grappling, I like Jamal Jones' ability to grapple and to wrestle and get guys down early in the fight, but can he do that in round two or three? I don't think so. I give Renan Ferreira the grappling advantage and definitely the submission advantages on the side of Ferreira. And last but not least, who has more heart? I hate to cut down the American Jamal Jones like this, but when you're not in shape for round two and when you're losing a fight, not because you're really hurt or TKO'd, you're just balling up and tired, that's a lack of heart, that's a lack of discipline, it's a lack of cardio, it's a lack of a lot of things. For Renan Ferreira, I believe he's taking things a little more serious, coming in with a better training camp, better focus, looks like he's in better shape. So I gotta give an edge there to Ferreira in the heart department. The two props I would look at here, the fight not going to distance for two reasons. One, Jamal Jones has heavy hands. He could knock off Ferreira. And secondly, Jamal Jones doesn't have the cardio to go three full rounds. So whether he gets knocked out and hurt or just balls up and gives up because he's too tired, either way, the fight probably does not go the distance. The second prop to look at is Renan Ferreira by any kind of a finish, TKO or submission. You can imagine a TKO finish, but I could also see Ferreira getting in a rear naked choke, getting in an arm bar. He's got good submission ability. He's from Brazil. That's part of his wheelhouse. That's the breakdown, guys. Pretty short and sweet, right to the point. Look forward to seeing this fight, though. I like Renan Ferreira. If you disagree, maybe you like Jamel Jones. Maybe you know something we don't know. Maybe he's short up his cardio. Give us some feedback. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And we're on to the next one, guys. Do something. The featured event for the prelim cards will be a featherweight bout between two veterans of the PFL, Chris Wade, who goes by the Long Island Killer, and Lance Palmer, who goes by the Party. Palmer's 22-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 110 on the money line. He's out of Sacramento, California, 35 years old, 5-6 in high with a 69-inch reach. He's out of Team Alpha Male. Actually, I believe he changed gyms. When we go over his profile, we'll talk more about that. He used to train at Team Alpha Male. He's now currently, I believe, in Tom's River, New Jersey. That's right. Training out of... Catone's gym. Again, we'll cover that when we go over his profile. As for Chris Wade, 20 and 7 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A slight favor here. It's a pick and price at minus 115. He's originally from Islip, New York, but now he's currently out of Long Island, New York, 34 years old, 5 foot 10 in height with a 70 inch reach, and he trains out of Long Island MMA. So, height and reach wise, not a big deal. Reach is about the same, but there's about a 4 inch height advantage for Chris Wade. As for the votes coming in on topology, the public likes Wade. So do I. 64% coming in for Wade and 36% coming in for Palmer. I like Wade to win the fight. I believe the fight goes to distance. It should be a tough overall fight 
But I believe Chris Wade has a significant advantage in this fight. And as we break down this fight, I think you're going to agree with me. Let's talk background on these two fighters. The profile for Lance Palmer. He was born in Ohio. He's a former four-time state champion. He also had his high school career documented in a movie called Pin. Haven't seen it myself, but I guess they covered some of his high school career. He wrestled Division I at Ohio State University for four years. He was a four-time All-American. I believe he's only the second freshman ever at Ohio State to win All-American honors as a freshman. He was runner-up second place in NCAA championships his senior year, his best year. Some of his most notable college wins, future Olympian and two-time NCAA champion Jordan Burroughs, NCAA champion and future Olympian Frank Molinaro, future NCAA champion and MMA fighter Bubba Jenkins, who's on this fight card, former and future NCAA champion Brent Metcalf. He finished his college career with a 121 and 33 overall record at Ohio State. He made his pro debut in 2011, 12-year pro experience in mixed martial arts. He's a brown belt BJJ. He briefly coached college wrestling as an assistant coach at Virginia Tech University. He's a family man. Him and his fiance have a daughter together. He's coming off of back-to-back losses in the PFL, and he has not won a fight in three years, which is kind of hard to believe, right? Three years for this guy. He's a very good fighter. He's out of Nick Katone MMA. He formerly trained at Team Alpha Male and Extreme Couture. He fought his first PFL match in 2017, and like we mentioned before, he went 11-0 to start his PFL career, but now he's coming off of back-to-back losses. He's two-time season champion in PFL, so he's won the million-dollar prize twice. Two recent opponents he fought against we're going to talk about. Movid Kaibalayev, 2021 decision loss. He loses round two and three. He does win round one, I believe, in that fight. Starts to taper off in round two and three and gets out-wrestled. And that's the thing that's kind of concerning here. He's a former national-level, Division One top-level wrestler. I mean, dare I say Olympic level. He beat guys like Jordan Burroughs, who went to the Olympics. But he tends to get out-wrestled in his recent fights. And in this fight here, he's fighting a Dagestani guy, Movid Kobolayev. That makes sense. Those guys know how to wrestle in that part of the world. In summary, though, he loses the fight due to wrestling. Specifically wrestling, not striking. In round two and three, he lost position, got out-wrestled, and loses the fight in something that he should be very good at. So whatever, just one fight, right? Well, prior fight, Bubba Jenkins, 2021, also decision loss, same season. Jenkins out-wrestled him in round one. It wasn't even close. Now, granted, Bubba Jenkins and him faced off against each other in college, and he defeated Bubba Jenkins in college. But Bubba Jenkins was a very good wrestler, former NCAA champion himself. And in that first round, you see who the better wrestler is. It's no question it's Bubba Jenkins. Now, he walks him down in round two. So round two now, Palmer, we're not wrestling. We're just backing up. We're circling and backing up, not engaging. And Jenkins is just basically bullying him and walking him down. In round three, it was a closer round. Definitely much closer. I think Jenkins starts to fade a little bit round three. Gets a little bit tired. And Lance Palmer starts putting more action, more volume, though it should be noted, in the third round, Jenkins gets another takedown on him again. Got a lot of questions here about Lance Palmer's wrestling game. Has it sort of faded away? It's been a long time since he was on the wrestling mat in college. Is he spending a lot of time wrestling or maybe not enough time? Because in his last two fights he lost against Movid Kubalayev, again, you could chalk that up as a Dagestani wrestling guy, got it. And then Bubba Jenkins, they both clearly out-wrestled him and that cost him both those matches. The things I like about Lance Palmer, he has an effective lower leg kick. He needs to use that more often, especially with a guy who's pushing pace on him like when he fought against Bubba Jenkins. Very good footwork. He's never a standing target. He's moving, he's circling, good head movement. He's a decent boxer. You can't tell that he's a former wrestler. Some of those wrestling guys sometimes have a very archaic boxing style, big overhand right. I mean, look at Khabib Nurmagomedov. His boxing was never really amazing. It was always just a setup to get in for a single leg or double leg takedown. And again, an excellent wrestling background, which we talked about. Now, my concerns for Lance Palmer. He lacks finishing ability. Eight of his last nine fights have gone to decision. His last finish was three years ago via TKO over a guy named Luis Rafael Laurentino. Laurentino was 1-2 and two in the PFL, no longer in the PFL. Now he fights for Chris Cyborg's promotion down in Brazil. He had an excellent run in the PFL as the organization was growing. So, for example, those first few years when the PFL was just getting established, he goes on an 11-fight winning streak. But here's the thing, though. I start looking more at his topology and who he was beating. He was not beating notable guys. When you hear the name Lance Palmer, you're thinking two-time PFL champion, multiple-time winner of the $1 million prize. So who was he fighting? Who was he beating for those championships in the PFL? Well, here you go. Alex Gilpin, 2019 championship. Who is Alex Gilpin? He has not fought since 2019. 
He finished his career with a 14 and four overall record. And notably, he fought Alex Gilpin three times that season. Okay, the guy's 14 and four overall. Three of his losses were that season at the hands of Lance Palmer. And don't you know every one of those fights went to decision? A guy who hasn't fought in three years, probably hung it up, not fighting anymore, more or less a no-name who fought in some lower-level promotions, comes to the PFL, suffers three losses in one year to the same guy, Lance Palmer, including the title fight. So somehow, Alex Gilpin made it to the title fight. Never heard of the guy. That was his second championship in the PFL in 2019. Now, his first championship, 2018, against Steven Siller. Look at his profile picture on Tapology. It says a lot. That 2018 championship over Siller. Siller is 33-23-1. No longer in the PFL. He's now fighting in Milwaukee under Anthony Pettis' promotion. Those were the two guys that he beat in the PFL for the championship. Don't fall for the hype here on Lance Palmer. He is a very good fighter. I, I like the guy. Nothing personal against him. Seems like a gentleman. Honorable dude, family man, the whole thing that all checks out. Amazing high school background in wrestling. Very well-liked guy, coached in college. All those things are good. I'm not talking about a personal here. I'm just saying, got to call a spade a spade here. His championships in the PFL and those $2 million that he won, good for him. But the game has changed, okay? There's new guys in the street now. The PFL competition has definitely gone up, whereas I see Lance Palmer has stayed the same. At 35 years old, he still has time here to compete, maybe two to three more solid years. But the reality is, it's all the guys around him have gotten better. There's better guys in the division. There's guys like Chris Wade. I don't believe he wins this fight. I think Chris Wade is the better overall fighter. So just a little snapshot there of Lance Palmer's tapology. I would encourage you, if you're looking to back Lance Palmer in this fight, if you're looking to wager on him, take a closer look at the tapology who he's fought against. As they say in life, right? Timing is everything. And Mr. Lance Palmer was in the PFL during the infant stages at the perfect time against the perfect opponents. And because of that, he won $2 million. Let's break down Chris Wade's profile. He was born in New York, former state champion himself at 140 pounds in New York State. He attended Nassau Community College out of high school, which is a junior college. He qualified for nationals his freshman year. After finishing up in junior college, he then transferred to Division Three SUNY Oneonta in upstate New York, finished fifth place at nationals. He currently trains out of Long Island MMA, which is located in Long Island. He's a blue belt in BJJ. He went undefeated as a kickboxer. I've heard people talk about it on the broadcast. I've read about it online. But I can't find a kickboxing record anywhere or any of the fights or any film or anything like that. Undefeated could mean he was 2-0, 1-0, 11-0, 12-0. I don't know. The kickboxing thing tends to be tough to gauge. You have people who kickbox all around the world, different level promotions. But he had a title, I guess, and he was undefeated. That's all I know about that. He went 2-0 as an amateur. He went 5-2 and in the UFC before they let him go in 2017 after his win over Frankie Perez. And you got to sort of shake your head at that. Wouldn't this guy be perfect for the UFC? He's got great character, carries himself well, not all tatted up. Nothing against tattoos, but seems like the more of the wholesome American boy from New York at the New York roots. You know, the New York crowd would like him for big events. And no, the UFC lets him go 2017 after he goes 5-2 in the UFC and finishes with a win against Frankie Perez. PFL picked him up. He's been in the PFL now for years. Both fighters happen to be southpaws, so there shouldn't be an adjustment here for either fighter. The most notable opponents for Chris Wade. He fought Movid Kaibalaev, the same opponent as Lance Palmer. He fought him last year, lost by decision. Kaibalaev is 19-0-1 for a reason. He won the championship last year. I thought he looked okay at times against Movid. He got cracked a few times by Kai Balag with just straight punches, nothing too awkward. The wrestling department, that was interesting. I thought at times Chris Wade did enough to hold his own in wrestling, but Movid Kai over the course of the fight just gets the better of you. Now, second round, I believe that round did go to Chris Wade. He had position control for most of the round. Another fight for him last year, Bubba Jenkins. Now, Jenkins is 16-5-0. Looks very good. He's also in this fight card. This was a tough fight. I thought Chris Wade at times had momentum. For example, round two, I believe he wins round two. We're going into round three again. 1-1, one, one, he has a chance there. Just gets the position control at key times in round three. It was back and forth. You watch the entire round. There's moments where Chris Wade has control. He's on top. And there's moments where Jenkins is on top and he has control. Both guys land a little bit of punches on the bottom. No one's really hurt. Jenkins does get cut, mind you. It was a very close round. It could have gone either way. Another prior fight for him. Loic Radzibov, 2019 decision loss. 
Loic is 16-4-1 overall. Very good fighter. I'm not sure if he's in the PFL currently, but he's bounced around from like the PFL, had a look at the UFC. Good overall fighter. He lost him by decision. Natan Schultz, 2018 split decision loss. Yeah, that Natan Schultz, very good fighter. Split decision loss, super close fight. He lost him for the second time that year. So he had two losses against Natan Schultz that year. Schultz is 21-5-1 overall. Excellent record. And believe it or not, he loses in that fight because of the wrestling. Natan Schultz comes in there, out-wrestles Chris Wade, gets position control, never strikes him and hurts him. There's never an off-balance Chris Wade. He's not cut. He's not hurt. One of the most durable fighters in the PFL. But once again, he gets nipped in the ass because of the wrestling. And he's a former college wrestler and former state champion himself. On the feet, that fight was very close. The striking was just about the same. But again, the wrestling department, Natan Schultz took it, ran with it, and won the fight. Here's another name for you. Islam Makachev, 2016 decision loss in the UFC. Boy, oh boy, that loss has aged really well. Makachev is 22-1 overall. And people are having a hard time surviving 15 minutes with this guy without him getting his hands around somebody's neck. Now, Islam Makachev, this was six years ago. He's obviously gotten better. He's improving. But the point is, this loss for Chris Wade, it shows that he can go in there against a championship-level caliber and opponent, could survive and go the distance. We'll talk more about his durability in a second, but that's an example of his durability. And then one more fight. Rustam Kabilov, 2016 decision lost, also in the UFC. Kabilov is 24-4. and Now, think about that. Chris Wade finished his UFC career 5-2. and two. These are the two guys he lost to. <laughs> Guys that are 22 and 1 and 24 and 4, excellent Russian wrestlers who outmaneuvered him, outwrestled him, one specifically because of position control. So when you're talking about Chris Wade, his topology, no offense, a lot more impressive than Lance Palmer. He's fought some really top-level guys, had a good run in the UFC. Some things I like about Chris Wade, he has excellent durability in 27 total fights and three more as an amateur, so that would be 30, never been TKO'd and never been submitted. Very impressive and a very durable fighter. We just mentioned before, he went to distance with Islam Makachev. That is a feat in itself. And clearly because he's never been submitted before, he has very good submission defense. His grappling game is A+. And lastly, winning is a habit for him. State champion in high school. He went to the finals in junior college and at his four-year school in college. Undefeated to kickboxing career. 2-0 as an amateur, has a winning record of 5-2 in the UFC. The guy is just a winner. Now, the PFL championship and that $1 million prize has eluded him thus far. It's kind of like the monkey needs to get off his back. This might be the year for him. He's going to run into some good guys like Mova Kobalayev again. He's hitting his prime at 34 years old. Maybe he got a chance to finally get that title. My concerns for Chris Wade, very low finish rate like his opponent here. Eight of his last nine fights have gone a decision. Another thing I noticed about him, especially in the Mova Kobalayev fight, boxing defense is not the greatest at times. His hands are a little bit low. It's like a relaxed stance. But there were several times that Mova just threw straight punches and really caught Chris Wade. Now, Chris Wade, again, has never been knocked out. Maybe he has a little bit too much confidence in his chin. I'd like to see him shore up his head movement a little bit more, bring the guard up, and don't allow guys who are not great strikers like Mova Kobalayev to just punch in the face so easily. You know what I'm saying? The fights we watched right on this film, we watched Palmer versus Kubalayev and Jenkins from last year. We watched Wade versus Kubalayev, Jenkins, Makachev, and Schultz. To watch any of those fights as part of our free video library, take a peek down below here on YouTube and our description. All right, boys and girls, the final thoughts we have in this fight. For experience, I give the edge to Chris Wade. We've already gone over it. He's fought the better strength of schedule. For fighter IQ, both guys check out. They both have wrestling in their background. They can grapple. They can box. Both guys are fairly intelligent fighters. I don't believe either guy has an edge in that department. As for cardio, also checks out. Eight of the last nine fights where both guys have gone to decision so they can go the full distance. They're prepared. They have good cardio. As for finishing ability or lack thereof, both guys have a very low rating for finishing. We've talked about it already. For boxing, I give the edge to Chris Wade. Now, here's my thinking. The stand-up defense has to improve. Lance Palmer has a little bit better of a guard, better stand-up defense. But the fluidity of how Chris Wade throws his strikes, he looks more comfortable. He throws more variety of strikes. Lance Palmer has a good leg kick, of course. 
Chris Wade has a good leg kick as well. But there's more fluidity when Chris Wade is throwing punches and combinations. It looks more natural and easy for him. Whereas Lance Palmer looks a little bit tighter, a little more balled up, kind of like uh, really jacked up and tight. Whereas Chris Wade comes off a little more relaxed, a little more fluid in his striking. For grappling, I give the edge to Chris Wade. And here's my thinking on this. I'm talking about grappling, not just wrestling. Wrestling-wise, about equal. They've both been out-wrestled recently. But the grappling, I mean that Chris Wade could defend the submissions. He's done a great job of that, never been submitted. So if it gets into a situation where it gets ugly on the ground, I like Chris Wade in the ugly areas on the ground. Sometimes he gives a position. Sometimes he has to regroup and get position back. But he's been very suitable on the ground against some top-notch people and has, again, never been submitted. And last but not least, the heart meter. Who has more heart here? Who wants it more? I believe the best days for Lance Palmer are behind him. He was in the right time, the right place when the PFL was growing. Two-time champion, well-deserved. He could only beat who was in front of him, right? So I'm not knocking him for that. But the sport has evolved so much, and you've got fighters all over the world at so many different promotions. The PFL has obviously benefited from that. Their level of competition has improved quite a bit. I see Lance Palmer disengaging at times. He didn't engage with Bubba Jenkins at times in that fight. It was almost as if he was being tentative. I'm not sure why. Maybe he had an injury. It could be other factors. But didn't look like the Lance Palmer that we think of, the two-time champion in the PFL. I believe now... At the age of 35, we're seeing the tail end of his career. Nothing's going to be getting knocked out. Nothing's going to be getting embarrassed out there. I just don't know how much a guy who's won $2 million already really wants it. And compared to a guy like Chris Wade, who, hey man, the dude's super durable. Never been finished before. Has an amazing gas tank. I believe he outperforms Lance Palmer here. The two props I like for this fight. The fight with the distance and Chris Wade by decision. That's the breakdown, guys. I'm not sure if you agree with me. A lot of people out there do like Lance Palmer, and I have a lot of respect for the former two-time champion in the PFL. I just believe this is Chris Wade's time. Thanks for joining us, guys. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and also take advantage of our free video library. The level is just too advanced. The bezel is Tiffany stamp. Don't grip on my hand. I know that I came with the slide from left to right, but now I don't want... Next up in the prelim cards is going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between two American fighters, Kyle Crash Bochniak and Bubba Badman Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins is 16-5 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. A favorite here at minus 275 on the money line. He's now based out of California, 34 years old. 5'8", high with a 72-inch reach. He's out of Black House MMA. As for Kyle Bochniak, he's 11-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's a dog on the money line at around plus 200. He's out of Boston, Massachusetts. 35 years old, 5'7", height with a 70-inch reach. He trains out of Broadway Jiu-Jitsu, along with Laos and Mixed Martial Arts and Skill of Strength. As for the public votes coming in on Tapology, Jenkins is the big favorite, getting 90% of the votes here, only 10% coming in for Bochniak. I'm going to tell you what, this kid, Kyle Bochniak, is a live dog. And when I say live dog, I'm not talking about the money line. The dude is a junkyard dog. This kid has a different gear. He's built a little different. We'll talk about his background. He's got an interesting story to tell. When he fought Zabit Magomed Sharapov, that was an effing war. He came in there as a big underdog. He hurt Sharapov at some point in that fight. He lost all three rounds of the judges' scorecard. He gave an amazing effort, showed a lot of heart, went toe-to-toe, -to -toe, was cut up, beat up, but never backed down, was in it to the very end, and even cracked the beat in the final round. Just an amazing effort overall. After watching that fight and some of his other fights, I got to tell you, this guy's a scary guy to fight against. He's not the kind of guy you want to get into it with. He's got that other gear. Like, he turns it on, and it's like he just sees red. Let's start with Kyle Bochniak first. Born in Massachusetts, had some troubles with drugs and alcohol in his high school years. Eventually drops out of high school. Ended up getting very serious for him. He overdosed on prescription pills, was put into a medically induced coma for a week. He eventually ends up in jail. And here's an ironic twist to his story. He's got a story to tell, like I said. He gets locked up. He's in jail. The next cell over, he meets a guy who happens to be his biological fucking father who walked out on him when he was two years old. He finds out his father. He ends up having a meeting with the judge regarding his case. He pleads with the judge that, listen, I don't want to be like my father. I've made mistakes, drug abuse, the whole nine. 
pleads for a second chance, gets five years probation. The judge releases him based upon this emotional story that he tells about my dad's in here. I don't want to be like him. He goes on five years probation. He moves out of town, moves to Hartford, Connecticut, changes his life, starts studying to be a welder, gets a full-time gig as a welder, and life is going good for him. He just happens to come across Broadway Jiu-Jitsu, which is a gym in the town. That's where his MMA career begins. This guy has those ingredients that you look for for someone who's tough and gritty, who wants to get in there and fight and prove themselves. He's been through a lot. His dad walked out when he was two years old, finds his father of all places in jail after he gets locked up, has overdosed, been in a coma, the whole nine. So he's got those ingredients that you look for in a guy who's just a junkyard dog, like I said. He's got a brown belt BJJ. He went pro in 2011, which gives him 11 years pro experience. He fought in UFC from 2016 to 2019. Yes, in the UFC. He went 2-5 in the UFC. Of course, not an impressive record, but he did fight some good talent, and he went to the toe. The guy's never been finished before. He also fought in CES, and most recently, he fought in XMMA. He's coming into this fight on a three-fight winning streak. He's replacing Sung Bin Jo, who was the initial opponent here for Jenkins. He earned Friday Night Honors in the UFC when he fought against Zabit in 2018. Again, a fight you really want to watch. Watch that fight. Watch how Kyle Bochniak fights, and you're just like, man, I wish every person I bet on would fight that fucking hard because he fights his ass off in that fight and he's undersized. He comes in as a big time underdog and just goes in there and gives a great performance. And that's why he got the fight of the night honors. Some notable opponents for Kyle Bochniak. He fought Sean Woodson in his last UFC fight, lost the fight by decision 2019. Prior fight, Hakeem Duwaldu 2018, split decision loss in the UFC. And then Zabit Magomed Sharapov, 2018 decision loss. Great fight. Again, please watch it. He worked his ass off in that fight. Got cut. Showed a lot of heart. He wants to fight. He had the crowd involved in that fight. He came out in round three. He's all cut up. He's coming out like on fire. He's yelling. He's doing woo in the guy's face. He's getting the crowd going. Just a lot of fun. And he actually cracked Zabit in that final round. Just a very impressive showing overall. The fight ends with both of them just swinging at each other, just back and forth. He also fought Enrique Barzola, 2016 split decision win in the UFC. That's one of his two UFC wins. The things I like about Kyle Bochniak, he's fought some very good competition. He had his run in the UFC. Maybe he's trying to get back there. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But the point is, he's been in the octagon with some good people. Charles Rosa, Jeremy Kennedy, Zabit Magomed Sharapov, Sean Woodson. And of all those guys he's fought against, seven UFC fights, I mentioned before, he's never been finished. Very, very durable. When you watch him fight against Zabit, he just goes right at the guy. Forward pressure, forward pace, getting kicked in the face, getting punched in the face. Shows no sign of being cracked. The guy's got an amazing chin. He also fights like a damn animal, and he drags it out of his opponent. He has the tendency of forcing his opponent to fight his style. A brawling style, very ugly, no regard for his own safety. If he does that in this fight against Bubba Jenkins, could he catch Bubba Jenkins? Could he catch him a little tired? At times, Bubba Jenkins does have these cardio dumps, which we'll talk about. So I think for Kyle Bochniak, who has an amazing gas tank, I mean, just high energy level, fights to the very, very end. He's not a guy you want to mess around with. He's not the kind of person where you want to take him lightly. He's going to fight you to the very end, tooth and nail. Now, my concerns for Kyle Bochniak, he does have a very low finish rate. He's been in 10 straight decisions and hasn't had a finish in over six years. He's four and four in his last five fights. The reality is he's right now a 500 level fighter over the last two, three years. Again, been fighting some good opponents, now on a three-fight winning streak, so maybe looking to come back here into the PFL. Kind of a lucky break, comes in as a replacement fighter, looking to get on track and hopefully earn himself a contract. Let's look at the profile for Bubba Jenkins. Born in Germany, former junior world champion in wrestling and NCAA Division I national champion at 157 pounds. Let me tell you this story, though, because I didn't know this about him, and this is really interesting how things work out. He signed to Penn State University right out of high school. He goes there for three years. His junior year, unfortunately, his grades are not up to par, so he retrots his junior year, doesn't wrestle at all. But then his senior year, they get a new coach, 
He doesn't like the new coach. New coach went on the record as saying he didn't like him either. So he's like, all right, fuck it. I'm out of here. Transfers to Arizona State University. He goes to Arizona State for one year. And what happens? He wins the national championship in that one season at Arizona State. It gets even better, though. Who do he face in the finals? David Taylor of Penn State. An undefeated wrestler who would go on to be world champion and a gold medalist in the Olympics. He faces him in the finals. His former team his former coach on the other side of the mat, and he beats this guy, David Taylor, for the national championship, a guy who had not lost up until that point. Interesting how things come around, right? Good for Bubba Jenkins. He got his, I don't want to say revenge. He enacted his revenge, whatever you want to put it, because I'm sure he wanted to stick it to those guys at Penn State, and he did, national champion. He's also the former Brave CF champion. He also fought in Bellator, where he had an 8-3 and three record. He signed to the PFL last year. He went 2-1 and one on his first year in the PFL. Some notable opponents for Jenkins. He fought Chris Wade last year and Lance Palmer and Bobby Moffitt. He lost the fight against Chris Wade, which was the fight to go to the finals. Tough fight. Went toe-to-toe the entire time. Chris Wade simply just outmaneuvers him, and I think the gas tank was a little bit of an issue in that fight. He did beat Lance Palmer, out-wrestled him for that win, and he rolled through Bobby Moffitt, no problem. So he's fought some decent competition in the PFL. Now, how will he do this year? I talked about this earlier in another breakdown. The competition is increasing, guys. The PFL's getting better fighters. You see the world of mixed martial arts exploding. Is he making those little adjustments that he needs to make? to stay relevant, stay in the game, and have a chance to win the title. That would mean, for example, cardio. has got to shore up the cardio. I feel like he has cardio dumps where he'll have like a minute or two where he's just exhausted, then bounces back. And it happens multiple times throughout the fight, which really concerns me. If that happens at the wrong time and someone's trying to jump on you and finish you, that could be the end of the fight. The things I like about Bubba Jenkins, he is an elite level wrestler. He has beat some of the best in the world. And when he fights in mixed martial arts against guys like Lance Palmer, who's a four-time All-American, Ohio State standout, four-time state champion, he beat up Lance Palmer with the wrestling. So don't let that fool you. If he can wrestle Kyle Bochniak, that's the easiest path to victory. If he stands in trades with this nutty kid, Kyle Bochniak, then who knows? All bets are off. He also sets the pace and comes forward in his fights. For Kyle Bochniak, who doesn't back up, it'll be interesting to see how they work this out. Because both fighters like to come forward. Both want to set the pace. For Kyle Bochniak, he doesn't care if you punch him or kick him. He's just going to keep going forward. But it should allow Bubba Jenkins at some point to get a takedown, whether it's by a trip or single leg or just good old-fashioned double leg takedown. So two guys like to come forward. Something's got to give. As for my concerns for Bubba Jenkins, he tends to get gassed out. I mentioned this before. He has moments in his fights where he'll have almost a full round where he's tired. Next round comes around, he looks better. I'm not sure if he's taking rounds off, trying to recuperate, but he has moments in fights where he looks very tired. He'll be phased down. He's a position. Speaking of position, he's an amazing wrestler, no question. But the fatigue plays a factor at times when he loses position on the ground. I believe it gets an elite level grappler, which is not Bochniak, but an elite level grappler could probably submit him and take advantage of that. At times, he gets a little too sloppy for my liking on the ground. He'll lose position that he should be keeping. And lastly, he's got a low finish rate. Four of his last five fights have got a decision. He's got one finish in the last four years. And the opponent he finished was a very low level guy. Not Pelator level, not PFL level, not UFC level, like a regional type of opponent. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Bochniak versus Magomed Sharapov, 2018. Bochniak versus Woodson 2019, Jacobs versus Palmer from last year, and Jacobs versus Wade from last year. To watch those four fights as part of our free video library, just look down below in the description below. You're going to see four links as part of our free video library. Take advantage of that when you have some time. My last few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, it's kind of a push. Jenkins is fighting the better fighters over the last year or so, but Kyle Bochniak has definitely fought the better strength of schedule when you look back overall. And he's also been in the UFC. As for fighter IQ, I give the edge to Jenkins because of the wrestling. He's got that in his back pocket. He could slow things down, grind a fight out, get an easy win using his wrestling. Whereas Kyle Bochniak, I love his fighting style, but it's dangerous. He's never been finished, but at some point, if he keeps fighting that way, someone's going to crack him. So I do love it. It's entertaining, yes, but not the smartest way to fight, if you catch my drift. As for cardio, 
I have some issues with Bubba Jenkins and his cardio. Not sure if he's improved in that area. I'm not sure if it's a physique thing. As for Kyle Bochniak, he's like the Energizer Bunny. He just does not stop. He goes forward even if he's hurt. For finishing ability, neither guy has shown good finishing ability recently. I don't think this fight gets finished. I believe the fight goes a distance. Might be some blood. Might be somebody getting hurt, but I don't think anyone gets finished in this fight. For boxing, I give the edge to Jenkins in that he's got clean boxing, good technique, good combinations. But the butt is the cardio. Like when he slows down, he's not himself. For Kyle Bochniak, the boxing is a little crazy at times. That's the way I put it. He's a junkyard dog. There's no like technique. It's just fully brawling. Remember this guy survived an overdose, been in jail. He's been around the block. Not a lot of things scare him. He wasn't scared by Zabit Magomed Sharapov kicking him in the face and cutting him up. I don't believe he's going to be scared of Bubba Jenkins. So when it comes to the boxing aspect, there's positive and negatives on both sides, but they're about equal. As for grappling, Bubba Jenkins is the better wrestler, no question, and probably will have the strength advantage in the clinch, will have a power advantage over Kyle Bochniak. Haven't seen Kyle Bochniak wrestle very much, doesn't have a wrestling background, he's more of a stand-up fighter, a brawler. If the fight gets to the ground for two of the three rounds, you imagine that Jenkins will have the easy path to victory. And lastly, who has more heart? I think Bubba Jenkins has a lot of heart, good fighter, I love his story, I mean, heck, wrestling national champ. But man, you watch Kyle Bochniak fight. It's like, I want to give him the highest rating possible for Hart because how he fights, no regard for his own safety. He wants to put on a show. He's very exciting. I'm glad for the kid. I'm happy for the kid. I'm glad he's getting this opportunity here in the PFL. He's going to put on a good show. People are going to like him. It sucks he got cut by the UFC. He's now doing XMMA, other promotions. This might be his break to get back into the mainstream because I believe he belongs in Bellator or PFL at the least. Maybe not in the UFC, but he's got a hell of a chin. Never been finished. He fights like a prize fighter. He gives the people what they want. That's the breakdown, guys. At plus 200-ish, I think Kyle Bochniak has a chance here. I am choosing Bubba Jacobs to win the fight. At minus 275 on the money line, it's a decent price. I believe the wrestling will take over. That should be his path to victory. But damn it, if this fight gets ugly and he gets to round three and Kyle Bochniak pulls up an upset here, it's not going to be that big of an upset. The kid's got potential. He's been through the UFC. He's fought some good opponents in the past. He's coming in here probably very thirsty off of three straight wins in XMMA, which is a decent promotion, not the level of PFL or Bellator, but still decent. I give the kid a shot here. This will be one dog where I'll put a sprinkle on him to win by TKO, maybe like round two, round three TKO. Look for that prop if that's available. But the reality is here, Bubba Jenkins has fought the better competition in the last two years. He should be able to neutralize everything Kyle Bochnack is offering with his wrestling. That's what I expect him to do. But there's always that but. There's always that chance. I am not going to be parlaying Bubba Jenkins into any of my big parlays. I just feel like there's too much of a chance here that this goes upside down. With Kyle Bochniak, he's the kind of kid where you just don't want to bet against him. Thanks for joining us, guys. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe and take advantage of our free video library. Do Next up, we have another heavyweight bout between the Russian Denis Golsov, who goes by the Russian Bogotar, and Sam Key, who goes by K9. K9 is 8-5 overall, 4-1 in his last 5 fights, a big dog here, plus 375 on the money line. He's of Tongan descent, but he's based out of Sydney, Australia, 6'3 in height with a 74.8-inch reach. He trains at Spike 22. As for Dennis Golsov, 27-7 overall, 3-2 in his last 5 fights, a big favorite here at minus 520 in the money line. He hails out of St. Petersburg, Russia, 31 years old in 10 months, so about to be 32. We don't have an age here listed for Sam Key. Golstoff is 6'5 in height, so about 2 inches taller than Sam Key, and a 78-inch reach, about a 4-inch reach advantage. He trains out of Sambo Petir. As for the public votes on Tapology, Golstoff is the huge favorite, getting 95% of the votes here, only 5% coming in for Key. I do agree. I like Golstoff to win the fight. I'll make this pretty short and sweet. He's a lot more experienced, has fought the better competition, and you look at Tapology here for Sam Key, his last fight was in April of 2021. Dennis Goldshoff has fought two fights since that time, and this will be his third fight within a year. So a lot more active, high-level competition. At 8-5, and five, Sam Key is coming in here way overmatched against Dennis Goldshoff, who has a lot more experience. Just looking at the numbers alone, I like Dennis Goldshoff to win the fight. At minus 520-ish, it's not a fight you want to bet straight up, unless you have a good feeling for a prop. And I don't have a good feeling in a prop. Heavyweight bouts, you imagine the fight that's not going the distance. I would put Goldshoff into some parlays with a lot of confidence. He's a 
pretty good overall fighter. He lost last year in PFL to Ante Delizia. Tough fight by decision. 5-2 and two overall in the PFL. Has only been finished one time. He's holding his own in the PFL with a 5-2 and two overall record. I expect him to be better this year. Have made some improvements. A lot more action than Sam Key, so make this easy again for you guys. I'm on Dennis Golsoff to win the fight. Let's Next up on the card, we have another heavyweight battle between Clayton Abreu, who goes by the White Bear out of Brazil, and Adam Koresh from Israel. The Israeli fighter is based out of Tel Aviv, Israel. He's 5-0 and overall, so undefeated fighter. He's currently a slight favorite here at minus 160 in the money line. He's 6'2 in height. We don't have a reach number on him. He trains out of Team Burt. As for the White Bear, he's 15-5 and overall. He's 1-3-1 in his last five fights. A bit of a rough stretch. Slight dog here at plus 130 in the money line. He hails out of Deerfield Beach, Florida currently. 29 years old, 6'2 in height with a 75-inch reach. He's out of American top team. So very good gym there for Clayton Abreu. But man, he's been a bit of a rough stretch. It's hard to want to bet on him right now at this point in his career. He's had his moments. His last win was against a guy named Sam Alvey. That's the last person he beat. That was in 2019. Other than that, he's got losses against Magomed Ankalaev, Shamil Gamzatov. He fought Jamal Hill. He lost the fight. Jamal Hill tested positive for weed, so it became a no contest. But he got knocked out in round one, just under two minutes. And his last loss was against Jamel Jones, round one, one minute, 43 seconds last year in the PFL. Just been on a rough run here. The Adam Koresh dude, we don't have a lot of information on him. Yes, he's undefeated, and he's actually fought decent level of competition. He's 1-0 in PFL and 3-0 in Bellator, so he's got some decent level of competition under his belt. Not amazing names, but still has fought in a good promotion. Going against a guy like Clayton Abreu, I feel like the cards are stacked against Clayton Abreu at this time. Adam Koresh, pretty good overall athlete. The film we did watch on him, he shows good movement for a big guy. He's a heavyweight, but he moves more like a light heavyweight. I believe he comes in here and tests the chin of Clayton Abreu. Not sure if he knocks him out but does enough has a high enough pace Abreu's last few fights the one thing that was noticeable about that his cardio didn't look very good he didn't look like he's in very good shape you can't judge a book by its cover but when you're looking at him in the octagon he just doesn't look like he's working very hard I don't know how else to put it so like Adam Koresh to win the fight here at minus 160 there's a lot of value in this I believe Adam Koresh wins the fight it's no-brainer for me he's the better fighter at minus 160, you could play this straight up. Not sure if you want to parlay it, because again, it's a new fighter on the scene. He's still making his way in the PFL, still growing, still making his inroads. Nonetheless, I like this really fighter to get the win here. And as for Clayton Abreu, man, it's getting to that point here. I fear that now we're seeing just the end of his career, at least the end of his career in the PFL. At 29 years old, he's not very old. But man, those last five fights, the running's on the wall, doesn't look very good. For Adam Koresh, he's going the opposite way. A little younger, we don't have an age on him, but I imagine he's in his mid-20s. Coming out of Israel, I've noticed that some of these promotions are trying to get an Israeli fighter in and that makes sense you've got a lot of israeli people that are in the mixed martial arts jewish people around the world who are in the mixed martial arts and so why not tap into that market maybe adam koresh is the guy so i like adam koresh to win the fight straight up possible tko finish but just don't know enough about this young man here at least i'll take him by decision to overwhelm clayton abreu which is better cardio over the course of three rounds next up in the card is going to be a featherweight battle at 145 pounds between shimon marias from brazil and boston salmon from the united states boston goes by boom boom like boom boom mancini if you remember that guy back in the day He's 8-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's a slight dog here at plus 140 in the money line. He hails out of Las Vegas, Nevada, 31 years old, 5'9 in height with a 72.5 inch reach. He trains out of Extreme Couture, which is in Vegas. As for Marias, 13-5 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. A bit of a rough stretch. He's a minus 200 favorite. He's currently based out of Arizona, though he's from Brazil, 31 years old, 5'8 in height with a 72 inch reach. He's out of Team Nogueira and also Black House MMA. Height and reach-wise, just about identical. Not going to be much of a factor. So let's talk about Shimon Marias first real quick. He was on a three-fight losing streak last year. He was in the UFC. He lost to Sadiq Youssef. He lost to Andre Feely. Then goes to the PFL and loses his first match in the PFL against Brandon Lofnane. All good names. Sadiq, Andre Feely, Brandon Lofnane. 
good level of competition. Now, before that, he had won against Julio Arce and Matt Sales in the UFC. His first match in the UFC was against Zabit Magomed Sharipov. Wow, what a way to open your UFC run. Obviously, he lost that fight round three via an anaconda choke. In the UFC, he was two and three overall, fuck a competition, came into the PFL again, ran into Brandon Lofnane, who's a hot fighter, and gets knocked out cold in round one. The kind of knockout where it's hard to get out of your head. But he bounces back, had two wins in a row last year in June and August, respectively. He beat Jesse Stern via round two Kimura, and then also had a round two knockout over Lazar Stoyadinovich. So he's bounced back. I think he's okay to recover from that knockout. The best version of Shamil Marias comes in here and probably wins the fight. My concern on the other side is he have Boston Salmon, who's also got some UFC experience. He went 0-2 in the UFC after winning on Dana White Contender Series in 2017. He beat Ricky Turusios. That's the guy who takes a beating but just doesn't go down, and they give him stand-up TKOs. That's Ricky Turusios. In any case, he wins a Dana White Contender Series in 2017, then doesn't fight until 2019 again. Not sure what happened. A lot of bouts got canceled, but comes to 2019 against Khalid Taha, loses round one TKO. Next fight against Randy Costa, round one TKO, loses that fight. Then comes back to the LFA, wins against Sean West in 2020. After the LFA fight against Sean West, he has a two-year layoff. He just fought recently against Do Jiom Lee in PFL Challenger Series 4, where he got a round two corner stoppage win. So kind of all over the place with this guy, Boston Salmon. Don't know what really to expect. Has some UFC experience. I'm going to side with Shimon Marais. I believe he still can get knocked out. He fights in a way at times where he can get a little sloppy and his chin's out there. But I believe the grappling advantage is there on his side. I think the experience advantage is on his side. And as a slight favor here at minus 188 to minus 200 the money line, it's not a bad spot. Now, how do you bet it? Mm, Got to be a little careful here. I don't know that you're putting up 200 bucks to make 100 bucks is a good spot. It is the second fight of the card. You don't want to start off too early with the parlays and have them get crushed. So maybe take a small sprinkle here on Marias, maybe a quarter unit, half unit, just to have some fun. For the prop bets, this is a good matchup, but it is featherweight, 145 pounds. It probably goes the distance. That's what I would imagine. So if you're looking for the guy who you think is going to win, choose him by decision. That would be Marias or Salmon. You're probably get a better price. But just taking the fight going the decision as a prop bet is not a bad idea either. I'm on Shimon Marias to win the fight. Little tentative here. You got two guys with UFC experience. And for Boston Salmon, been in and out of the octagon, had two-year layoffs, just came back, just fought literally a month ago. So we'll see what happens here. But I'm going to start with the veteran here, Shimon Marias from Brazil. The first fight, the car is going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between Alejandro Flores from Mexico and Saba Bolaji from Germany. Bolaji's 14-2-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, currently a slight dog here at plus 120 on the money line. He hails specifically out of Frankfurt, Germany, 33 years old, 5'6 in height with no reach number. He's out of MMA spirit. As for Alejandro Flores, who goes by El Galito, he's 23-0 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's a slight favorite here at minus 116 on the money line. He's out of Monterrey, Mexico, 30 years old in eight months, so about to be 31 soon, about two years younger than his opponent. Five foot nine in height, about three inches taller than Saba. As for the public vote, the numbers coming in on Tapology are on the side of Flores, 69% to be exact, with 31% coming in for Bellagi. I think Alejandro Flores at 20 and 3, he's got a pretty good record, has fought some better competition than Saba Bellagi. Now, if you look at Saba Bellagi's profile picture on Tapology, it looks like he has a singlet on, like he's a wrestler. He's going to come in here and try to grapple and wrestle. That could be his path to victory. But he's up against a guy here who's a typical Mexican fighter with good hands, good boxing, good chin, very durable, good card, all that stuff checks out. He has fought the PFL as well before. He had a win against Carl Deaton back in August of last year. So there's some experience there for Alejandro Flores in the PFL. He also fought on Contender Series in 2020, lost via guillotine choke round two to Rafael Alves. And he's also fought in Kabate for most of his career, and he's put together a nice winning percentage, again, 20-3 and three overall record. Ash Wasabi, again, you look at his profile picture and you go to his page on Tapology. 
He's all in a singlet. He's on a wrestling mat, just finishing a wrestling match. He's 14-2-1. He's jacked. He's built like a brick. I imagine he comes in here and looks for takedown opportunities. That's his path to victory. I wouldn't put too much money on this because if Alejandro Flores gets taken down early and gets ridden out for two rounds, that's the path to victory for Saba Balaji. At the same time, with the good hands Alejandro has, if he can get some distance with Saba and make the fight on the feet a little bit longer or maybe even gas out Saba a little bit, he picks him apart on the feet and gets the win. Somebody tells me the dog is live here. I'm going to go ahead and take a stab at the German fighter. I think Saba Balaji comes in, mucks it up a little bit. At plus 120 on the money line, it's worth a stab. Not going to bet much either way in this fight, but I like Saba Balaji coming in here. I think Alejandro Flores on the feet wins the fight. But that's a big if. You got a guy in Saba Balaji who's coming in here with one track mind. He's coming in here to wrestle. As long as his cardio is okay and he doesn't get clipped coming in for the takedowns, I believe he does enough here to get an ugly win in a very boring fight for the newcomer to the PFL. That's the breakdown, And that guys. brings us to the end of the show, guys. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to give you a quick summary of our picks. We'll start at the top. We like Bruno Capeloza, Brendan Lofnane, Ante Delizia, Renan Ferreira, Chris Wade, Bubba Jenkins, Dennis Golsoff, Adam Koresh, Shamil Marias, and Saba Bolaji. The picks we have the most confidence in on the prelim card, Dennis Golsoff. On the main card, Renan Ferreira, Brendan Lofnane, and Bruno Capeloza. The fights were a little bit iffy on. The ones were like, you know what? Something could happen here. The fights we're not as confident in, the Clayton Abreu fight, the Shimo Marias fight, and the Saba Balaji fight. There's some question marks in those fights. Now, on the main card, I like Anta Delicia to win, but we talked about it. I think Matthias Shuffle has something there. He's got some tools. He could give Ante Delicia some problems. I think Ante Delicia wins the fight, but not surprised if that fight is a little bit closer than people expect. And on the prelim card, Kyle Bochniak. I like Bubba Jenkins. He should win. But damn it, Kyle Bochniak is just a junkyard dog. He's got a puncher's chance. He's got a hell of a chin. Kyle Bochniak is scary to bet against. That's the full card breakdown, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming by. We appreciate your support. So keep supporting our channel and making this possible. Just like and subscribe and share. Give us some comments. Give us some feedback. We wish you the best of luck with this card. If you're looking to track our bets, we put everything up on betmma.tips. And we also list all of our bets on Twitter as well. So if you're not following us on Twitter, give us a follow. And on Instagram, the same thing. We put as much information out there on Instagram and Twitter as possible to keep you guys informed. Again, thank you for joining us. Please like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. And we'll see you guys soon. Over and out.